Are you studying for your board exams and looking for low-cost, high-quality practice questions? Well, look no further than the High Yield Family Medicine Patreon page. For just $5 a month, you'll gain instant access to over 100 board-style practice questions, each complete with detailed explanations and focusing on all the high-yield topics you need to know for test day. Don't miss out on this opportunity to elevate your studying and enhance your knowledge and skills in family medicine. Sign up now at patreon.com slash highyieldfamilymedicine. Link in the description. Hello, and welcome to episode 18 of the High Yield Family Medicine Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be doing an overview of some of the most high-yield things you need to know for the NBME as it pertains to immunodeficiency disorders. There are several different types of immunodeficiency disorders, and these can generally be broken down into primary and secondary causes. Primary immunodeficiency disorders are characterized by dysfunction in one of the many cell types or associated proteins that comprise our immune system while secondary disorders are characterized by immune dysfunction as the result of certain drug effects, infections, or other comorbidities. Let's run through some of the most common of these immunodeficiency disorders now, trying as always to leave you with the big picture idea of what's really going on, while sprinkling in some high-yield tidbits along the way. Let's begin with selective IgA deficiency. Selective IgA deficiency is actually the number one most common primary immunodeficiency disorder, and this is characterized by undetectable levels of the immunoglobulin IgA, with normal levels of all the other immunoglobulin classes. Immunoglobulins are secreted by plasma cells as part of our humoral-mediated adaptive immune system, and plasma cells that secrete IgA are present in high quantities in the mucosal surfaces of the body, such as the ears, sinuses, respiratory, and GI tracts. Most patients with selective IgA deficiency are completely asymptomatic and are only diagnosed incidentally through lab work, and in these cases, there is no indication for medical intervention. However, some individuals with IgA deficiency experience recurrent mucosal infections, such as sinusitis, otitis media, pneumonia, and chronic diarrhea, in which case daily prophylactic antibiotics may be recommended, such as trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, aka Bactrim. Patients with IgA deficiency are also at increased risk for diarrheal infection by the parasite Giardia lamblia, commonly found in contaminated drinking water, and this can be treated with metronidazole. Many patients with selective IgA deficiency tend to also have concurrent allergies and autoimmune disorders, and this is a common theme for many of the disorders we'll be discussing today, as allergic and autoimmune disorders are intrinsically tied to the immune system. Some patients with IgA deficiency are deficient in IgA due to circulating autoimmune IgG antibodies targeted against IgA, so if these patients were to receive a blood transfusion containing IgA, then it could result in a severe allergic reaction with possible anaphylaxis. Therefore, it's very important that patients with IgA deficiency should only receive blood transfusions containing washed RBCs, or blood that is otherwise deficient in IgA. Next up is Bruton's A-gamma-globulinemia. Bruton's A-gamma-globulinemia is an X-linked disorder characterized by a deficiency in the enzyme Bruton's tyrosine kinase, an enzyme responsible for a key step in early B-cell development in the bone marrow. As such, these patients won't have any mature circulating B-cells, nor will they have detectable levels of any of the immunoglobulin classes. The classic presentation for Bruton's A-gamma-globulinemia is a baby boy that is otherwise healthy for the first six months of life, 
but by around six months, they will begin to develop recurrent mucosal infections. Patients with Bruton's agammaglobulinemia are much more likely to be boys, since the BTK enzyme is on the X chromosome. And the reason why they're healthy for the first six months is that they're still going to have some protective benefit from circulating placental antibodies, as it takes about six months for these to get cleared out. In addition, patients with Bruton's agammaglobulinemia are at particularly high risk for infections by encapsulated organisms, such as strep pneumo, Haemophilus influenza, and Neisseria meningitidis. Treatment for Bruton's agammaglobulinemia is going to be with antibiotics, but also with regular interval treatments of intravenous immunoglobulin therapy, or IVIG, in order to provide some passive long-term immunity. Let's now talk about something called transient hypogammaglobulinemia. As we mentioned while discussing Brutons, infants get some protective benefit from placental antibodies for the first six months of life. And these antibodies are basically all IgG because IgM and IgA cannot cross the placenta. Babies do get some IgA if they're breastfed, but IgA usually stays within the intestines and doesn't make it to the circulation. So therefore, all the circulating antibodies from the placenta are IgG which is great because infants get that protective benefit. However, mom's circulating antibodies can also negatively feed back on the baby's own endogenous antibody production, resulting in a transient hypogammaglobulinemia most prominent within the first few months of life. Transient hypogammaglobulinemia is typically harmless and will go away on its own once the placental antibodies are cleared out. But it's important to consider this anytime you're evaluating an infant's immunoglobulin profile within the first six months of life. Next up, let's discuss hyper-IgM syndrome. Hyper-IgM syndrome is a disorder characterized by the inability of B cells to class switch from secreting IgM antibodies into secreting other antibody classes, such as IgA or IgG. The default antibody class secreted by mature circulating B cells is IgM, and it's not until they're activated by CD4-positive T helper cells do they switch their antibody classes. Class switching is caused by an interaction between the CD4-positive T-helper cells CD40 ligand binding to the B cells CD40 receptor, and it's this function in this interaction that's thought to cause hyper-IgM syndrome. The classic presentation for hyper-IgM syndrome is a young child experiencing recurrent respiratory infections by encapsulated organisms, and on laboratory evaluation they will have elevated levels of IgM, with low or undetectable levels of all the other antibody classes. Treatment of hyper-IgM syndrome includes daily antibiotic prophylaxis, as well as regular transfusions of IVIG. Next up, let's discuss combined variable immunodeficiency, or CVID. CVID is a primary immunodeficiency disorder characterized by low levels of all immunoglobulins, resulting in recurrent mucosal infections. CVID is not one disease, but rather a spectrum of diseases, all with various genetic mutations resulting in poor antibody production. Unlike most of the disorders we're discussing today, CVID doesn't usually present in children, and will classically present in a young adult in their 20s to 40s experiencing recurrent sinopulmonary or ear infections. Patients with CVID will also very often have concurrent autoimmune disorders, especially hematologic disorders such as autoimmune hemolytic anemia or immune thrombocytopenic purpura, wherein circulating antiplatelet antibodies cause thrombocytopenia and purpura, which are purple spots on the skin that are caused by the internal bleeding of small blood vessels. Patients with CVID also tend to have swollen secondary lymphoid organs on physical exam, such as hepatosplenomegaly and lymph node enlargement, 
and this is due to lymphocytic infiltration and granuloma formation, which, while benign, is a source of chronic inflammation that predisposes patients with CVID to an increased risk for malignancies such as lymphoma. Treatment for CVID is with IVIG to prevent recurrent infections, as well as glucocorticoid therapy to treat any concurrent autoimmune disorders. Next up, let's discuss Severe Combined Immunodeficiency, or SCID. SCID is a combined B-cell and T-cell disorder resulting in an almost complete failure of the immune system to mount a proper response. The number one most common cause for SCID is an X-linked mutation in the gene IL-2 receptor gamma. IL-2 receptor gamma produces a protein known as the comma gamma chain, which is one of the basic protein subunits found in several different interleukin receptors. So if the IL-2 gamma gene is mutated, the comma gamma chain will be affected and a whole host of different interleukin pathways will be disrupted. Interleukins, by the way, are cytokines that are mostly secreted by CD4-positive T-helper cells and play a bunch of different roles in the immune system, but an aggregate can be thought of as the major regulator between the humoral-mediated response and the cell-mediated response. We've already discussed a bit about the humoral response, which is mostly driven by antibody-secreting plasma cells, but there's also the cell-mediated response, which was accomplished in large part by phagocytes, such as neutrophils and macrophages, as well as by cells that are capable of direct cell lysis, such as natural killer cells and cytotoxic CD8-positive T cells. So when these interleukin pathways are defective in X-linked SCID, the immune system is totally helpless against foreign invaders. The second most common cause of SCID is due to an autosomal recessive deficiency in the enzyme adenosine deaminase. Adenosine deaminase is a critical enzyme in the process of purine salvage, wherein old purines are recycled back into new nucleotides. The problem with adenosine deaminase deficiency is that in order for the immune system to work properly, you need lots of different proliferating cells, each of course needing its own nucleotides. So if you have a defective nucleotide recycling system, then you get defective cellular proliferation and a subsequently defective immune system. The classic presentation for SCID is a baby within the first few months of life experiencing recurrent infections, including opportunistic fungal infections, such as pneumocystis herovesiae. A diagnosis of SCID can be made by testing for something called T-cell receptor excision circles, or TRECs, which are byproducts of T-cell receptor development and are totally absent in patients with SCID. Treatment for SCID is usually multifactorial, including IVIG and daily prophylaxis. However, the curative treatment for SCID is hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, which rids the body of the old defective stem cells in exchange for new, functional immune stem cells from a donor. Next up, let's discuss DeGeorge syndrome. DeGeorge syndrome, also known as velocardiofacial syndrome, is a multi-system disorder characterized by a microdeletion in chromosome 22Q11, resulting in abnormal development of the third and fourth pharyngeal pouches. The third and fourth pharyngeal pouches are embryological structures that give rise to the parathyroid glands, certain structures of the heart, some pharyngeal structures, and the thymus. The thymus is located in the upper chest right behind the sternum and in front of the great vessels, and will normally appear on chest x-ray of young children as a triangular-shaped sales sign, although this sign usually fades in adults as the thymus involutes with age. The thymus is where progenitor T-cells go once they leave the bone marrow in order to become fully differentiated CD4-positive or CD8-positive T-cells. 
in individuals with DeGeorge syndrome, the thymus is at least partially absent, so these patients will have low or undetectable levels of both CD4 and CD8 positive T cells, resulting in recurrent sinopulmonary infections, autoimmune disorders, and an increased likelihood for certain cancers because of deficient CD8 positive T cells, which help to destroy cancer cells. All patients diagnosed with DeGeorge syndrome should get an echocardiogram to screen for congenital heart defects, with some of the most common defects seen in DeGeorge being Tetralogy of Fallot, Truncus Arteriosus, and Interrupted Aortic Arch. For more information on these and other congenital heart defects, refer to Episode 13. Patients with DeGeorge syndrome will also have hypocalcemia because they have no parathyroid glands, and this can manifest as twitching and muscle spasms on physical exam. Patients with DeGeorge syndrome will also have underdevelopment of lower facial structures, such as a cleft palate. And if you put all of these features together, DeGeorge syndrome is sometimes referred to as CATCH-22 syndrome, which is an acronym standing for cardiac anomalies, abnormal facies, thymic hypoplasia, cleft palate, hypocalcemia, and 22 because of the microdeletion of chromosome 22Q11. For most cases of DeGeorge syndrome, there's at least still partial residual activity of the thymus, and so there's less of a chance for a current infection in these patients. However, in more severe cases, thymic transplantation can be very beneficial to help restore thymic activity. Next up, ataxia telangiectasia is an autosomal recessive disorder characterized by progressive ataxia and cutaneous telangiectasias. Ataxia telangiectasia is caused by a mutation in the ATM gene on chromosome 11, which is responsible for various aspects of DNA repair and cell cycle regulation. The first presenting sign for ataxia telangiectasia is typically seen in early childhood, with a young boy or girl having an altered gait. On imaging, these patients will have cerebellar atrophy and typically become wheelchair-bound by age 10. The key feature to differentiate ataxia telangiectasia from other autosomal recessive ataxia disorders, refer to episode 16, are the presence of telangiectasias, which are small, widened blood vessels that are visible underneath the surface of the skin. Most patients with ataxia telangiectasia will also have some degree of immunodeficiency, and this is characterized by low immunoglobulin levels and low CD4 levels. The number one cause of death for patients with ataxia telangiectasia is from recurrent sinopulmonary infections, so treatment will include IVIG and prophylactic antibiotics. The number two cause of death in ataxia telangiectasia is due to complications from various cancers, as the ATM gene is crucial for cell cycle regulation, and thus any defects can result in malignancy. As such, any patients diagnosed with ataxia telangiectasia should be advised to avoid any ionizing procedures such as x-rays or CT scans due to their intrinsic defect in DNA repair. Next up, Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome is an X-linked disorder characterized by the classic triad of immunodeficiency, thrombocytopenia, and eczema, and this can be remembered by using the mnemonic WATER, standing for Wiscott, Aldrich, thrombocytopenia, eczema, and recurrent bacterial infections. The cause of Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome is due to a mutation in the gene coding for the Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome protein, or WASP, which is involved in the regulation of actin filaments, resulting in abnormal cytoskeleton architecture and disrupting the function of pretty much every hematopoietic cell type except for red blood cells. So patients with Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome will have impaired B-cell and T-cell function, dysfunctional phagocytosis, but will actually have an increased number of natural killer cells, except that these natural killer cells are non-functional. 
Treatment for Wiscott Aldrich syndrome is with regular IVIG therapy, and natural killer cell activity can be restored in some patients with the use of exogenous IL-2. But ultimately, these patients are going to need hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Next up is hyper-IgE syndrome. Hyper-IgE syndrome, also known as Job's disease, is an autosomal dominant disorder characterized by a mutation in the gene STAT3, resulting in overproduction of the immunoglobulin IgE, as well as abnormalities in the production of certain pro-inflammatory cytokines, such as IL-6 and interferon gamma. Patients with hyper-IgE syndrome have chronic eczematous rashes due to elevated levels of IgE and eosinophils, and these rashes are prone to superinfection by staph with subsequent abscess formation. One way to remember this is that the name Job's disease is in reference to the biblical character whose faith was challenged by God in many ways, including losing his family, his wealth, and eventually his health, as he suffered from chronic postulous boils all over his skin. The hallmark feature of the infected skin abscesses seen in hyper-IgE syndrome is that they are cool to the touch, which is reflective of the underlying deficiencies in the cytokines IL-6 and interferon gamma. IL-6 is involved in the production of several pro-inflammatory factors, and one of its effects is in the activation of T-helper-17 cells. T-helper-17 cells are a subset of CD4-positive T-cells with the primary responsibility of secreting IL-8 and granulocyte colony-stimulating factor, both of which act together in order to recruit neutrophils. Interferon gamma is another pro-inflammatory cytokine that is suppressed in hyper-IgE syndrome and is normally secreted by CD4-positive T-helper cells in order to recruit macrophages. So since IL-6 and interferon gamma are both deficient in hyper-IgE syndrome, these patients won't be able to properly recruit neutrophils and macrophages, and thus will have recurrent bacterial pneumonias, as well as recurrent fungal infections, such as chronic mucocutaneous candidiasis, necessitating daily antibiotic and antifungal prophylaxis. Next up, leukocyte adhesion deficiency is characterized by an inability of neutrophils to migrate across the endothelial surfaces of capillaries. The most common cause of leukocyte adhesion deficiency is from a defect in the CD18 gene, which codes for an integrin that allows neutrophils to stick to the endothelium in order to get to the site of infection. The classic presentation for leukocyte adhesion deficiency is a newborn baby with recurrent infections in the first few weeks of life, and they will also have delayed sloughing of the umbilical cord. The hallmark feature for leukocyte adhesion deficiency is a lack of pus at the site of infection, and this is because pus is basically just dead neutrophils. And since patients with leukocyte adhesion deficiency can't properly recruit neutrophils, they will have no pus. Almost paradoxically, these babies will actually have elevated levels of neutrophils on their labs. And this is because the neutrophils are trapped within the vasculature, so it will appear to show up high on a blood test even though the periphery is totally devoid of them. Treatment of leukocyte adhesion deficiency is with hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Next up, Chediak-Higashi syndrome is an autosomal recessive disorder, which is actually also a type of lysosomal storage disease, and can affect a few different cell types, including leukocytes and melanocytes. We talk more about lysosomal storage diseases in episode 17, but a common feature among them is the presence of intracellular granules, which are basically just distended lysosomes incapable of digesting certain materials due to a deficient lysosomal enzyme or related protein. Chediak-Higashi syndrome is caused by a defect in the lysosomal traffic regulating protein, or LIST, L-Y-S-T. 
and most commonly presents in early childhood with bleeding, recurring infections, and the hallmark feature of oculocutaneous albinism caused by dysfunction of melanocytes resulting in patches of the skin, hair, and iris that are totally devoid of any pigmentation. Treatment of Chediak-Higashi syndrome is with hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Next up, chronic granulomatous disease is characterized by a deficiency in the enzyme complex NADPH oxidase. NADPH oxidase is found within phagocytes such as neutrophils and macrophages and is responsible for a key step in the respiratory burst process whereby reactive oxygen species such as superoxide, O2-, are created within phagosomes and react with phagocytosed microbes in order to destroy them. Without effective NADPH oxidase, phagocytes are unable to properly kill foreign cells, particularly those bacteria and fungi which are catalase positive, such as Staph aureus, Pseudomonas burkholderia, and Aspergillus. Catalase is an enzyme that is shared by these microbes and is able to reduce the effectiveness of the respiratory burst by breaking down hydrogen peroxide. The classic presentation for chronic granulomatous disease is a young child with recurrent skin and lung infections characterized by granulomas, which are basically just clumps of phagocytes that are unable to kill a microbe, so instead they just gather around them and wall them off from the rest of the body. Diagnosis of chronic granulomatous disease involves measuring the neutrophil's activity to produce reactive oxygen species, and there's a few different tests out there that you might see to do this, including the nitroblue tetrazoleum test, which turns blue in the presence of superoxide, indicating an intact respiratory burst, but you might also see the cytochrome C reduction assay or the dihydrorhodamine-123 assay, both of which can measure the activity of NADPH oxidase. Treatment for chronic granulomatous disease is with prophylactic antibiotics and antifungals, with definitive treatment being hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Next up, let's discuss complement deficiencies. In the way that antibodies can be thought of as the humoral component of the adaptive immune system, complement proteins can be thought of as the humoral component of the innate immune system. These complement proteins, C1 through C9, perform in various forms of immune defense, including opsonization, or tagging of foreign pathogens, direct cytotoxic effects, and the formation of a membrane attack complex, or MAC. In general, defects in the earlier complement proteins of C1 through C4 result in impaired opsonization with resultant recurrent sinopulmonary infections early in life, with C3 deficiency tending to be the most severe while defects in the terminal components, C5 through C9, tend to present in late childhood and adolescence with recurrent pneumococcal and Neisseria infections. Deficiencies in certain complement proteins, particularly C1, C2, and C4, are also implicated in several immune complex and autoimmune-mediated disorders, including systemic lupus erythematosus and rheumatoid arthritis. This is because complement proteins C1, C2, and C4 play a key role in recognizing cells that have been marked for apoptosis, and also help to facilitate the degradation of these cells. In the absence of C1, C2, and C4, however, these old cells tend to stick around for longer and eventually develop autoimmune antibodies on them, which can accumulate and cause all sorts of problems. There is no cure for complement deficiencies, but vaccination against pneumococcal and meningococcal organisms is highly recommended, and in cases of autoimmune flare-ups, immunosuppressive therapy with glucocorticoids can be used. Next up, let's talk a bit about leukemia and lymphoma. 
Leukemias are a broad spectrum of disorders all relating to abnormal proliferation of white blood cells, and this can be inferred by just looking at the name, leukemia, meaning lots of leukocytes in the blood. Many of the disorders we've discussed today are caused by aberrations in the differentiation of hematopoietic stem cells, resulting in deficient white blood cells. However, leukemias are actually characterized by excessive proliferation of white blood cells, though these cells are often dysfunctional, resulting in immunodeficiency. Leukemia can affect either lymphoid progenitor cells, which normally give rise to B cells, T cells, and natural killer cells, or it can affect myeloid progenitor cells, which normally give rise to erythrocytes, megakaryocytes, mast cells, and myoblasts, which are the precursor cell to neutrophils, eosinophils, basophils, and monocytes. Patients with leukemia tend to have really high levels of white blood cells on their CBC, often many times the upper limit of normal. However, these will tend to be immature blast cells, and the next step here is going to be to look for the absolute neutrophil count, which tells you the number of actually functional mature neutrophils. If the absolute neutrophil count is low, these patients are functionally neutropenic, and a source of infection should be investigated, followed by empiric broad-spectrum antibiotics. Lymphomas are similar to leukemias in that they are characterized by abnormally high leukocytes, but the proliferation of lymphomas occurs within the lymphatics and lymph nodes instead of in the bone marrow, which is where leukemia disorders develop. Both leukemias and lymphomas are treated with chemotherapy, but each subtype is managed differently, so I'll save those specifics for a future episode. And lastly, I'll mention a few secondary immunodeficiency disorders. Glucocorticoids, such as prednisone, prednisolone, and dexamethasone, are members of a wide spectrum of medications, all with the two primary effects of anti-inflammation and immunosuppression. There are several different diseases that are treated with glucocorticoids, including asthma, arthritis, certain autoimmune conditions, cancers, as well as in prophylaxis for individuals with organ transplants in order to prevent rejection. There are several mechanisms that explain glucocorticoids' effects on inflammation and immune suppression. Number one is that steroids can affect the genomic transcription of inflammatory cytokines. This is because steroids are small, cholesterol-based molecules and so are able to freely pass into the cell's nucleus and bind to transcription factors in order to inhibit the transcription of pro-inflammatory cytokines, such as IL-6 and interferon gamma, while at the same time upregulating the transcription of IL-10, which is an anti-inflammatory cytokine. The second way glucocorticoids affect the immune system is in high pulse doses, wherein excessive glucocorticoids can bind directly to glucocorticoid receptors on the surface of various immune cells, creating a physical barrier that prevents them from functioning normally. The net effect of all of these processes is lowered inflammation, which is why they're prescribed in so many diseases. However, intrinsically tied to this is the effect of lower defense against microbial invasion. Therefore, for patients taking long-term or high-dose steroids, antibiotics and antifungal prophylaxis should be considered along with intermittent screening for various infections, and this is because steroid use will often blunt the typical signs for infection, such as a fever. A few other common causes for secondary immunodeficiencies include AIDS, malnutrition, burn patients, and those with diabetes mellitus, so it's important to remain vigilant for opportunistic infections in these patient populations. And that about wraps it up. There's only one way to end an episode like this, and that's with some practice questions. Question 1. A four-year-old girl is brought by her mother to your office with a two-day history of fever and left ear pain. 
Her family recently immigrated to the country, and her medical history is significant for a repaired cleft palate as a baby, and five episodes of Otitis Media in the past year. As part of your workup, you order genetic testing, which confirms a microdeletion in chromosome 22Q11. Which of the following is most likely to also be present in this patient? A. Absent T-cell receptor excision circles, or TREX. B. The presence of the triangle sign on chest x-ray. C. Absent levels of all immunoglobulin classes. Or D. Hypocalcemia. Answer. D. Hypocalcemia. This four-year-old girl with recurrent infections and a history of cleft palate is found to have a microdeletion in chromosome 22Q11, confirming a diagnosis of DeGeorge syndrome. These patients will often have hypocalcemia due to missing parathyroid glands. T-cell receptor excision circles are commonly screened for on newborn screens as a marker for SCID. Patients with DeGeorge syndrome also have thymic hypoplasia, presenting as an absence of the triangle sign on chest x-ray, as well as varying degrees of T-cell dysfunction. However, immunoglobulin levels are mostly unaffected in DeGeorge syndrome, as these are a product of B-cells. Question 2. An 11-month-old boy is brought to your office by his mother for a one-day history of fever and fussiness. This baby was previously healthy up until about four months ago, when he began to experience recurrent ear infections, each time treated with antibiotics at home. On physical exam, he has a temperature of 102 degrees Fahrenheit, bilateral bulging and purulent tympanic membranes, and abnormal breath sounds on auscultation of the left lower lobe. On laboratory evaluation, there is a normal CD4 cell count, but undetectable levels of mature circulating B cells and undetectable levels of all immunoglobulin classes. After confirming the diagnosis with genetic testing, which of the following therapies would be most appropriate to provide long-term protective immunity in this patient? A. Enzyme replacement therapy. B. Low-dose daily prednisone. C. Hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Or D. IVIG. Answer. D. IVIG. This infant boy started having recurrent ear infections at about 6 months of age, and is found to have absent mature circulating B cells and absent levels of all immunoglobulins, which should make you very suspicious for X-linked Bruton's A-gammaglobulinemia. There is no cure for Bruton's A-gammaglobulinemia, but IVIG is effective in providing long-term passive immunity for these patients. As for the other choices, Enzyme replacement therapy can be used for some immunodeficiency disorders, such as in adenosine deaminase deficiency causing SCID, as well as in the treatment of various inborn errors of metabolism, such as Pompe's disease. However, it is not indicated for the treatment of Bruton's A-gammaglobulinemia. Low-dose steroids are used in the treatment of many chronic inflammatory disorders, but long-term use of steroids are immunosuppressive and would therefore be contraindicated in this patient. Hematopoietic stem cell transplantation is an alternative to IVIG in the treatment of Brutons. Although there are many challenges and risks associated with hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, including the potential for graft-versus-host disease, not to mention the necessity for long-term steroids. Therefore, IVIG is the preferred treatment for Brutons A-gammaglobulinemia. Question 3. A 27-year-old woman comes into your office with a two-day history of headache and nasal congestion. 
She has been seen in urgent care with similar symptoms twice in the past six months and was hospitalized last year for autoimmune hemolytic anemia that is now resolved and she is currently not taking any medications. On physical exam, she has tenderness on palpation of her forehead and around her cheeks. Which of the following mechanisms is most likely to explain this patient's recurrent infections? A. A mutation in the IL-2 receptor gamma gene resulting in defective cellular signaling. B. Low but detectable levels of immunoglobulins. C. Impaired phagocytic respiratory burst due to a deficiency in NADPH oxidase. Or D. Medication-induced immunodeficiency. Answer. B. Low but detectable levels of immunoglobulins. This young woman with a history of autoimmune hemolytic anemia is experiencing recurrent sinusitis infections, which should raise our suspicion of an underlying immunodeficiency disorder. Considering her medical history, it might be reasonable to think that the steroids used to treat her autoimmune hemolytic anemia may be predisposing her to these recurrent infections, except that her hospitalization was over a year ago and that she's not currently taking any medications. She's unlikely to have a mutation in the IL-2 receptor gamma gene, as this would cause X-linked skid, which presents very severely in young babies. Impaired phagocytic respiratory burst due to a deficiency in NADPH oxidase is the cause for chronic granulomatous disease, and is also typically diagnosed in childhood. Low levels of immunoglobulins, however, are a consistent feature of some of the more common immunodeficiencies that present in adulthood, including selective IgA deficiency and CVID. Question 4. A 3-year-old boy is brought to your office for a well-child visit. This patient is new to your office, but in some of the old medical records, you see a few hospitalizations for pneumonia and a reported delay in developmental motor milestones. The boy is feeling well today, but on physical exam, you notice some thin, dilated blood vessels on the sclera of both eyes. When you ask the boy to walk in a straight line, he cheerily attempts to do so, but is unable to accomplish the task without holding on to a nearby table. You order an MRI of the brain, the results of which prompt DNA testing revealing a mutation in the ATM gene on chromosome 11. Which of the following features is most likely to be present in this patient? A. An increased sensitivity to ionizing radiation. B. Circulating antiplatelet antibodies. C. Progressive degeneration of neurons in the anterior horn of the spinal cord. Or D. Cerebellar hemangioblastoma. Answer, A, an increased sensitivity to ionizing radiation. This case is a description of ataxia telangiectasia, caused by a mutation in the DNA repair gene ATM, wherein mutations cause cerebellar atrophy, telangiectasias, and an increased risk for cancer. Therefore, all patients with ataxia telangiectasia should be advised to avoid ionizing radiation. Circulating antiplatelet antibodies are a feature of immune thrombocytopenic purpura and does not typically present with ataxia. Degeneration of neurons in the anterior horn of the spinal cord is a general description for spinal muscular atrophies, which typically presents as a generalized motor weakness versus ataxia. And lastly, cerebellar hemangioblastomas are benign tumors of blood vessels and are commonly associated with renal cell carcinomas of von Hippel-Lindau disease, and these hemangioblastomas should be surgically removed as they are prone to rupture and hemorrhage.